open because if you don't, you will get lost very quickly in this sermon, okay? Job chapter 3, let's begin in verse number 1, and this is what the Word of God says. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those cursed who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none nor see the eyelids of the morning. Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water, for the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. The third chapter of the book of Job has been labeled by some as the most depressing chapter in the Bible. It is indeed a chapter of darkness. And in this dark chapter, the divine perspective of Job's suffering that we saw in chapters 1 and 2 is now replaced with a limited human perspective on suffering from Job. You also notice, if you were reading along in your Bible carefully, that this chapter serves as a transition from the language of prose and narrative in chapters 1 and 2 to the language of poetry, which will consume the major section of this book all the way to Job chapter 42. 
And you can see that clearly if you look down at your Bible and see the way the words on the page are arranged differently in chapter 3 than they are in chapters 1 and 2. Robert Fial, in his book, How Does God Treat His Friends?, explains the importance of the shift in language from prose to poetry to the overall understanding of the book of Job, stating, Poetry is a way of expressing the intensest and most powerful emotions in the most concise and compelling way. Thus, the distress of Job, and indeed of all who suffer, is encapsulated in this poem of immense and sober power. This ancient, poetic, and enduring language of prayer known as lament finds its place along some of the most beloved psalms and the words of the weeping prophet Jeremiah. In his helpful and excellent book, Mark Vrograv writes in Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament, that lament is a loud cry. It's a howl. It is a passionate expression of grief. More than mere demonstrations of frustration and sorrow over loss, he writes, listen carefully, biblical lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And this is what we see in Job chapter 3. A prayer of pain that will ultimately lead to renewed trust in God in the life of Job. Job chapter 3 is a very important chapter for contemporary Christianity. Job's words in this chapter uproot the foundation of the shallow, trite, superficial version of Christianity that is rampant today. It is a Christianity that contains no category for suffering and lament. For in Job chapter 3, we see what it's like for a person who loves God to go through the dark night of the soul as Job is plunged into the depths of discouragement, depression, and despair. In Job chapter 3, Job is a broken man with a crushed spirit. Maybe, just maybe, you can relate to Job. Maybe you're tired this morning of constant pain and suffering. Maybe you find yourself this morning worn down by the heaviness of your trials. Maybe you are so exhausted from life, you wish you could just die and go to heaven. Or maybe, maybe you find yourself in such a state of despair, you just wish Christ would return now before we even finish Job chapter 3. And this is exactly how Job felt. Job had lost the desire to live.
Listen carefully, friend. We need Job chapter 3 in our Bibles. Without this chapter, there would be something important missing to the teenagers and the college students and the younger folks than me in the room. You may not need this chapter now, but if you live life long enough, I guarantee you, you will turn back to this chapter and be able to relate to Job. If your soul ever reaches the depth of Job's soul, this chapter will come in handy. For through the darkness and the depths of his pain, Job teaches the modern sufferer how to grieve as he cries out in the lament to God over his birth, over his longing for death, and over the miseries of his life. So would you notice with me, first of all, in verses 1 through 10, Job's lament over his birth. And you'll notice in these first 10 verses that Job invokes a curse on two events that made his life of suffering possible. He cursed his birth and he cursed the night that he was conceived. Now, notice carefully, if you look in your Bible, you're going to see two words that stand out in these first 10 verses. If you're using the ESV, it is the word let and the word may. And these words are used 14 times in these 10 verses. These Hebrew words are what one writer called wish verbs. They represent what Job wishes to take place in his life. And these repeated words are intended to put us in the mood of gloom and doom so that you and I can feel what Job feels. This is not a raw, raw, storm the gates of hell with a water pistol sermon. This is feeling the despair and the darkness and the depression that enveloped Job. And these words help us do that. In verses 1 through 5, Job curses the day of his birth. The Bible says, after this, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. The very first phrase after this refers to the series of losses and calamities that Job experienced in chapters 1 and in chapter 2. And the Bible says that after experiencing tremendous loss and after a week of sitting in the ashes in silence with his friends, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. The word cursed means to reject or spurn or to hold someone or something in contempt. And here in chapter 3, Job is so overcome with grief that his pain has blotted out all remembrance of the blessings of God in his life. 
in such a disheartening way. Job looks back on his life and he, and he views his interests into the world with complete and utter contempt. With such contempt that he loathes his existence to such a degree that he wishes that the day of his birth and the night of his conception would perish. That that, that day and that night would be utterly destroyed. And with the use of this word perish, Job is expressing his deepest desire that all of the records... The birth certificate, all of the actions surrounding his existence would be forever eliminated and removed. In Job's mind in these verses, it would have been better if he had never experienced life than to experience what he is experiencing now. You'll notice in verses 4 and 5 that Job extends the curse on the day of his birth. Notice carefully what he says in these verses. Let that day be darkness. For Job, the pain and the sorrow that have engulfed his life can only be viewed as doom and gloom. And in verses 4 and 5, Job uses four different Hebrew words for darkness five times to describe the curse On his birth, he longs in verse 4 that that day would be darkness. In verse 5, he asks that gloom and deep darkness would claim that day. And at the end of verse 5, he asks that the blackness of the day would terrify the day of his birth. The phrase deep darkness would be familiar to you. It's the same word that is used in one of the most beloved psalms in our Bible, Psalm 23, in verse 4, when David talks about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And Job says that my life is so dark, the only way I can describe it is death. And I wish the day of my birth would just be clouded in darkness. He is in a state of depression and despair. And with the repeated use of the language of darkness, Job is seeking to reverse the very words of God in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3. If you're familiar with Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says that in the beginning... Before time, darkness was everywhere. And then in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says that God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, and He saw that it was good. But if you look in your Bible in these verses, as Job is talking about darkness, he is actually pleading that God would perform a reversal of creation. And instead of speaking light into being, he would reverse it and only speak darkness. And that the darkness would so overcome life that the day of his birth would be forever removed from history. Christopher Ashe, in his commentary on Job, is very helpful here. He says, light is about God. It's about goodness. It's about creation. It's about order 
And it's about life. And for a day to become night is for a part of creation to be undone. And this is how depressed Job is. Undo creation, God. And in addition to this desire for a reversal of creation, in verse 4, Job adds another phrase to his curse. Do you see it? He says, may God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. And by wishing that God would not seek the day of his birth, Job was hoping for an impossible reversal of God's life-giving, life-sustaining power. That instead of God noticing the day of Job's birth and therefore noticing Job himself, that God would forsake the day of Job's birth. And by forsaking the day of Job's birth, God would forsake Job. That he would remain in complete darkness. Job is crying out to God the God that he trusted in, in his providential care, and in these verses, Job is crying out and saying, God, remove your providence from me. Don't have any notice of me. Just let me remain in darkness. These are the words of a man who is broken, a man who is overcome with suffering and loss, a man who can not remember the joys of the past, a man who sees no hope for the future, his only remedy for his pain is to wish that he had never been born. And then, in verses 6 to 10, Job curses the night of his conception. He says, that night let thick darkness seize it, Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those cursed who curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none. Nor see the eyelids of the morning. Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb. Nor hide trouble from my eyes. In verse 6, Job curses the night of his conception. He wishes that thick darkness would seize that night so that it would be swallowed up in darkness and it would forever be removed from the calendar of days, months, and years. And then in verse 7, Job wishes that the night of his conception would have been barren, that it would have literally been stony, meaning that his mother's womb would have been barren. And he says in verse 7, not only that her womb would have been barren, but there would have been no joy or pleasure for his mother or his father on the night of his conception. He wishes that night had been truly night in the darkest and deepest sense imaginable. He wishes it would have been like the plague of darkness over Egypt at the time of the Exodus. He wishes that God would have forsaken the night of his conception. You'll notice in verse number 8, a very interesting verse. To strengthen his curse, Job calls on professional sorcerers of the ancient world to awaken the powers of evil and to perform a curse on the day of his birth and the night of his conception. These sorcerers, he says in verse number 8, are those who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Uh, We'll see this ancient 
mythological seven-headed sea monster again in Job chapter 41. The ancients believed that this monster had the ability to swallow up the sun and the moon. That Leviathan represented the forces of evil in the world whose sole mission is to turn God's order of creation into total and utter chaos. And in verse 8, Job pictures these ancient sorcerers uh, giving incantations and arousing Leviathan and waking him up so that he'll swallow the sun and the day of his birth will never come into existence so that he'll swallow the moon and the night of his conception will never take place. Job in these verses is cursing and crying out and asking for his utter annihilation. And then in verse number 9, Job declares that God would never allow the sun to rise in the morning and the stars to break a new day, that he would remain in darkness. But the climax, the climax of his curse, is in verse 10, where Job declares that the night of his conception and the day of his birth have done nothing but open him to troubles. That if only the doors of his mother's womb had been closed, trouble would have been hidden from his eyes. The night of his conception, the day of his birth, have done nothing for him but lead him to misery in life. And if darkness would have swallowed them up, if creation would have been reversed, Job would have been spared the hopelessness that he now must endure. He would have been spared the trials and the troubles and the tragedies and temptations of life. He is in total, utter darkness, despair, and desperation. And do you know that his reaction in these verses is not uncommon? I imagine that there's some in here who could relate to some of the things that Job has said in these verses. How many of us, when we've experienced tragedy and pain and suffering and loss, have found ourselves crying out to God for a reversal? Oh, if I could only redo that decision. Oh, if I could only make that change. Oh, if God, you could only turn back time and change things in a different direction. How many of us in the loneliness, in the greatest despair of our lives have wondered whether it's really worth continuing? This is where Job is. Enveloped in a darkness that has caused him to lose a biblical, God-fearing perspective on life and to believe dark, distorted lies. A darkness that wants him to escape from the pressures of life. And I imagine you might be able to relate to that at some point or another in your life. What are we to do in these times? It's in those moments that we have to look to light. The light of God the light of his word 
and the light of his people. We not only see Job's lament over his birth, we also see Job's lament over his longing for death in verses 11 to 19. In these verses, Job's speech changes from cursing to questioning in the form of a lament. This lament is divided into two parts. Each part begins with the question, why? And each part ends with the supposed peaceful rest of the dead. Now you'll notice in verses 11 to the end of this chapter, the key word shifts. It's no longer the word let. It is now the word why. And it is used six times in the remainder of this chapter. As one author said, in this question of why are wrapped up all the questions of all sufferers throughout the ages. Now let me be clear and helpful this morning. There is nothing wrong with asking why. This is a natural question for us to ask God in times of suffering. However, it is wrong to demand that God answer you. God may choose to answer you, and God may choose not to answer you. But you and I must remember in our suffering, when we are asking the question why, God does not owe us an answer. Warren Wiersbe helpfully reminds us of this truth, saying, we live on promises, not explanations. So ask why. Job did. But don't demand that God answer you. In verses 11 and 12 and in verse 16, we see that Job desires death. Look at what he says in verses 11 and 12. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me or why the breast that I should nurse? And then in verse 16, he asks another why. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? In these three verses, Job asks four questions that express his desire for death. In the first question found in verse 11, Job wonders why he had to be born and then why he had to stay alive. Why couldn't he immediately die once he came into the world? In his present stage of depression, Job can find no reason for his life. He can't understand why God would have allowed him to even survive his birth if all of this suffering was going to take place in his life. Then in verse number 12, Job asks the next two questions. And these questions in verse 12 refer to a Hebrew custom where a newborn baby was placed on the father's knees as a mark and a sign that the father received that child as his own and that he would care for that child. And then after the father received the child on his knees, he would hand the child to his wife who would then nurse this newborn baby. 
And with these questions in verse 12, Job is simply asking God, God, why did my father accept me as his own? And why, God, why did my mother sustain my life? Why did she nourish me and nurture me and care for me? God, why didn't you just let them abandon me when I was born so that I could die instead of enduring pain like this? But the darkest question that he asks is verse 16. And in verse 16, Job says, God, why couldn't I be a stillborn child that never sees light? Job believes he'd have been better off if he'd never been born. And he just wants to die. In verses 13 to 15 and 17 to 19, we have the back end of his questions. And in these verses, Job describes death. As we examine these verses, church, we need to remember that Job, the book of Job, is the oldest book in our Bibles. And Job does not have the advantage of the New Testament to give a complete and accurate picture of life after death. And so keep that in mind as we read these verses. Look at verses 13 to 15. For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. And then in verses 17 to 19, he says, There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. There they hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. And in all of these verses, what Job is saying is that he would have been better off if he had never lived after his birth because death, would have brought him rest instead of pain. And that's the theme of these verses. Job is desiring death because for Job, death means rest. And the language that is used here reminds us of the seventh day of creation when the Bible says that God rested from all of his work. And Job is saying, if I had that kind of rest, instead of all this turmoil, I would be in much better shape. And you'll notice the intensity of his desire for this rest is indicated by the use of four different words. If Job were to die, he would lie down. He would be quiet. He would sleep. And he would rest. In verse 14, he not only pictures death as rest, he pictures it as a reunion. Remember, Job was the greatest man of the East. And Job says, if I were to die, I'll be buried alongside all the other great people of the world, the kings and the princes and the counselors. Death is the great equalizer of life. 
Here I am sitting on the ashes, scraping my broken body with broken pieces of pottery. And God, if you would just let me die, it'll make me equal with kings and counselors and princes. And then in verses 17 to 19, Job describes death as relief. There the wicked cease causing trouble. The weary rest. The prisoners are at ease. They no longer hear the commands of their taskmaster demanding more work. The slave is free and the small and the great are there. Death for Job was a place of rest away from the burdens and sufferings of life. Job would rather be dead and at rest than alive and confined to pain and misery and suffering. Job would rather be dead and at rest than alive and restless. Oh, how he longs for death. And friends, you need to understand that the Bible is speaking openly and honestly to us about how Job feels, what, is he, what he is experiencing, and what he is thinking. But Job only understands death through a very limited knowledge. And there are many people today who view death just the way Job does. That's a, that it's a state where you no longer exist. That it's a, it's a place of rest. It's a place of quiet. It's a place of peace. Some believe it's a place where you become an angel and all these other crazy things. This is not the full and accurate picture of what the Bible teaches about death. The Bible teaches, as we put on the New Testament lens, that death brings every single person who's ever lived into the eternal presence of God. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 that it is appointed for every single one of us to die once and then face judgment. That every single person will give an account of their life to the God who created them. And then, based on what you have done and how you've responded to God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you will either exist eternally forever in a literal physical place called hell that is encompassed with complete darkness where the worm never dies, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth for all eternity, or you will dwell in the very presence of God in light and glory and peace and eternal rest forever all based on how you respond to Christ and what he's done for you on the cross do you know what's amazing about Job's picture of death here it matures as Job continues to wrestle in his suffering as he continues to cry out to God as he deals with his uh, friends in the chapters to come he gets about halfway through his conversation with his friends and he speaks about death again. And he, listen, here's what he does in Job chapter 19. He talks about what he once engraved on his tombstone. And this is what he says in Job chapter 19, verses 23 to 27. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved on the rock forever. He's speaking of his tombstone. Write this on my tombstone. What does he want written? For I know 
that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, and my heart faints within me at the prospect of that thought. That is his view on death. His Redeemer lives. And because his Redeemer lives, he will live. Because there's hope in his darkness. And friends, this view of death in Job chapter 19 is the Christian's view of death. It's something that is to be longed for, not as an escape from the realities and pain of life, but as an entrance into the eternal loving presence of God. And that is what Job longs for. But right now, in Job chapter 3, he longs for rest. He's weary, he's worn, and he's full of whys. But do you know what will happen? God will never answer Job's whys. You know what he'll do? He'll show Job who he is. And God's response to Job's whys is a lesson for you and me. We don't need to know the answer to our whys to endure pain and suffering. We need to know who is sovereign over our pain and suffering. And this is what Job will learn out of his darkness. Well, we not only see Job's lament over his birth and Job's lament over his longing for death. In verses 20 to 26, we see Job's lament over the misery of his life. He writes, Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who longs for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sign comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Something very important takes place in the text in verses 20 to 22. Job moves from the singular to the plural. The word misery is used in the singular. And the bitter in soul is used in the plural. And the implication that the text is making here is that Job's experience is not unique. That his question of why is not for him alone. It's for you. It's for you. It's for you. It's for you. It's for all of us who have ever asked and wondered why you'll also notice in these verses in contrast to the first half of this chapter where job emphasized the darkness of death job now refers to light as life and he asks god in these verses why are the miserable and the bitter in soul allowed to continue to live here again is a man who longs for death. 
And in verses 21 and 22, it evades him like one who diligently searches for hidden treasure. And Job is searching diligently for rest and relief for death. But his search leaves him empty. But just as a treasure seeker celebrates and is full of joy when he finds that hidden treasure in those valuable riches, Job says him and those like him, when they find rest and relief through death from their suffering and their pain, he will rejoice, he will be exceedingly glad and full of joy. Job is describing himself and he's describing you who have lost hope and can't see the point in living and just want release from the pain of life. And he says to God, God, why do you keep giving me light? Why do you keep giving me life? Let me be out of these miseries. Now you'll notice in verse 23, Job asks his last why, wondering why light is given to man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in. This last question may be the most powerful question. Job is at a loss. The direction of his life has been shrouded by his affliction. Job is sitting in the ash heap wondering where his life took a wrong turn, wondering why everything turned out so bad. And he cannot figure out how to turn it around. He says it's the way is hidden from him. The word hidden, listen, it literally suggests that in this moment, Job finds no purpose for living. That he is so full of depression and despair and darkness he can't find a single purpose or reason to live. Sure, he would love to turn his life around. Sure, he would try to go in a different direction, but the way to turn and the way to go is hidden. He can't find a purpose in it. And so he'd rather just give up. You ever felt like that? But even more powerful is his next description of his life. God has hedged him in. Did you, do you notice something familiar? This phrase, hedged in, it, it should remind you of something. If you've been here the last couple weeks, it's the exact wording and language that Satan used when he accused God of protecting and blessing Job. Satan says, God, you put a hedge of protection and blessing around Job, and that's the only reason why he worships you. If you'll take that hedge down, Job will curse you to your face. And now, Job, the one who is in the midst of suffering, takes the very language that Satan uses it, and he turns it to God, and he says, God, you've hedged me in. You've put walls all around me, and they're not walls of protection and blessing. They're walls of pain and suffering and affliction. And God, these walls are so big that are hedging me in. The way to get out of it is hidden. I don't know where to turn. It's a maze that never ends. 
And God, why? Why are you prolonging my suffering? Why are you hedging me in? That's the biggest why, isn't it? Why, God? Why? Why can't I have relief? Oh, C.S. Lewis understood it. He understood exactly what Job was talking about in this verse. When his wife died, to deal with his grief, he wrote a little book called A Grief Observed. And there's a section in it that is so deep and dark, you can't help but think of Job and what he's asking in verse 23. And this is what C.S. Lewis writes. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or as it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. You may as well turn away. Sound like Job? And the longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? That's Job. That's you. That's me. When God's silence is deafening. But you know what will happen? Job will continue to talk to God in his grief. And he'll learn. Listen. He will learn not to trust in his feelings and his emotions. But to trust in the one thing that suffering can never change. Do you know what the one thing that suffering can never change is? God. That's what Job will learn. God will never change in suffering, even in the silence. Verses 24 to 26. As he ends his lament, Job transitions away from lamenting and grieving on behalf of all sufferers to emphasize his own suffering. In these three verses, if you write in your Bible, you should notice this observation. He uses the word I, my, or me nine times in these three verses to fully express his pain and his suffering. In verse 24, his pain is so intense that he's lost his appetite. His signs are his food and his groanings are his water. 
And the language that's used here describes shrieks and wails and loud noise. And this has become his bread and his water. Job is so afflicted he can't even think about eating. And in addition to the shrieks of his pain, look at verse 25. You're going to find yourself in verse 25. Job discloses that the thing that he feared and dreaded the most had become a reality in his life. What? Oh, yeah. Job feared God. We learned that in chapter 1. But not only did Job fear God, Job feared that calamity would happen in his life. In fact, if you go to Job chapter 31 and verse 23, Job says that he feared that he would receive calamity from God. And you know this is true because in Job chapter 1 verses 4 and 5, Job continually offered sacrificial offerings on behalf of his family in case they sinned and cursed God so that God would continue to protect them. You know what Job is saying? Under, under the surface lied a deep, looming, foreboding fear of future suffering. It's an anxiety that all of us know. See if this doesn't sound familiar to you. You worry about the economy and the hardship that may be coming soon. You worry about your health because you're exhibiting some form of symptom or you've been diagnosed with an illness or you have a looming test or procedure on the horizon or because of the terrible health history in your family. You fear your health because of everything that is being pressed upon us in the world at this time. And you find yourself worrying about having enough money for retirement. You worry about your children. You worry about your grandchildren. You worry about your aging parents. And this is just a small list, friends. Here's the point. There's no end to the worries and the anxieties of life. And all of us are just like Job. Underneath the surface dwells an unsettling fear of the future. And the thing that Job feared and dreaded the most, suffering, had come upon him. And we are just like Job. And finally, in verse 26, Job summarizes this tumultuous season of his life. And he declares that in the midst of sorrow, ease, quiet, and rest have evaded him, and trouble continues to find him. One commentator translated this last verse this way. It's so powerfully. He says that Job uses four sharp clauses that stab like a knife. And here's how he translates Job's words in verse 26. I cannot relax. I cannot settle. I cannot rest. And agitation keeps coming for me. Here in this chapter is a picture of a man who had everything that life had to offer sitting on a pile of ashes, troubled by his troubles. Job suffered spiritually. He suffered emotionally. He suffered physically. And he suffered intellectually as he continually asked the question that you and I continually ask, why? But did you know 
that Job is not alone at the height of his suffering and asking why. Even God's very own son at the height of his suffering for when the full weight of sin and rebellion were placed upon him as he hung on the cross and his father turned away from his son because he could not look on the sin that Christ was bearing, Christ cried out, My God, my God, why? Jesus Christ had to be forsaken by God to satisfy his wrath for our sin. Listen, so that at the height of our suffering, we can cry out why, and Jesus can come tenderly and softly and remind us that he will never leave us, and he will never forsake us in our suffering. Jesus was forsaken in his suffering so that you and I would never be forsaken in ours. And this is the good news of the gospel and the work of God's Son, Jesus Christ. The darkness and the despair of Job's lament over his birth, over his longing for death, and over the misery of his life provide a brutally honest example of one sufferer's wrestling with God. Far from heretical, these sincere cries of lament in Job chapters 3 from the soul of the afflicted are expressions of continued trust in the character of God who's sovereign over all suffering. And listen, while God will correct Job at the end of the book for his many errors, he will never, ever rebuke Job for his lament in chapter 3. Anthony Savaggio, in his book Considering Job, emphasizes the importance of this, saying this. Listen carefully. The real danger in times of suffering is not that we might say something wrong to God in our crying out to Him, but that we would become angry with God. We would blame God, and we would avoid God entirely. When people experience suffering, they often run away from God and refuse to acknowledge Him. That is unfaithfulness. Through this ancient language of prayer, all forms of heartache, including the hidden pains of the death of a loved one, the effects of debilitating diseases, and the destruction of the devastation and destructive memories of abuse and abandonment, find an outlet to cry out to God and lament. If you're suffering, don't run from God. Don't let go of God. Kneel before Him. Cry out to Him in honesty regarding your pain and your desire for it to end. And remember, church, remember, 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 and never, ever forget God is big enough to handle your whys. Let's pray.